All right, well, grab your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 2. We are continuing today in this gospel uh, where Jesus is revealing to us who he is through word and action. Um, And one of the ways that Jesus does this um, is is he interacts with the ideas um, that the first century Jews had about how God's law works together. And so we see him doing this over and over again. One of the common uh, kind of ways that that, that Jesus uh, addresses this is he says, um, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And if you go through the Sermon on the Mount especially, he says this a lot. He goes, you've heard it said, and he quotes sort of their law, and he says, but I say to you. Um, In other words, there's this common understanding out there. There's this way that all of you know this is how the world works. It's wrong. Uh, But I say to you, let me give you clarity. Let me show you the right way to understand it. And in this, Jesus is not just correcting. He's inviting people to a better way. He's not mainly making an argument. He's instilling a new way of life. Now, as Jesus goes along, we see he does this in a lot more than just his verbal teaching. Um, He also does it through the way that he lives. He does things constantly um, that just push back against their common understanding of how things are supposed to be. But he's not causing conflict for the sake of causing conflict. He's confronting the ways that human beings have distorted what God created good. Because you can't just add Jesus to your conception of God that you develop on your own. In order to get it right, some things need to be removed, some things need to be broken in order to be rebuilt the right way. And we actually sing this here. Uh, There's a song that we sing here, Take us, O Lord, and all we have known. Shape us, O Lord, and form us into your own. Take every heart and know every sin. Break us, O Lord, that we may be whole again. What this is, is this is an invitation for Jesus to offend us and to disagree with us and to attack the things that we have wrongly placed our hope in. And we want him to break us so that we can be remade in wholeness. Because to live in unison with the creator, the way that he has created us to be, is the absolute best thing for us. Now, we've already seen Jesus doing this some. We saw it last week um, when he sat down and he had this meal with all the tax collectors and the sinners um, He made it clear then, as they they sort of challenged him, um, that he is the great physician. And Jesus says, but I have only come for those who are sick, which forces anyone who wants to come to God to admit that they are sinners in need of grace. In order to come to him, you have to take on a posture of humility. And this humility then is going to bleed out into how you treat the sinners and the tax collectors that you come into contact with. Now, as we see Jesus doing this, we we tend to kind of cheer him on. It's easy for us to watch him knock down the sacred cows of the first century Pharisees, but it's a little bit more uncomfortable when he comes for ours. And the truth is, we should all be challenged by Jesus. We should all be offended by Jesus. You should not read through the gospel and go, yep, that's pretty much what I already thought. No, he, sees, he says things that make liberals call him a hater, make conservatives call him a socialist. Jesus constantly pushes back in all directions. And it's meant to poke at the very things that you have incorrectly elevated or dismissed. And so today, we're going to see Jesus again causing conflict, going around and making all sorts of people angry. And as we do, I want to put us in the hot seat a little bit. 
My prayer is that as we look at Jesus refining and realigning, that we can be brought more in line with the rhythms of life that he created. Now today we're going to be focused on the spiritual disciplines, specifically fasting and Sabbath keeping. We've got a lot to do. Let's get into it. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18, it says this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day is coming, or sorry, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. So we see John's disciples, when we see the Pharisees, practice the discipline of fasting. And so fasting is um, abstaining from something, usually eating, uh, in order to shift your focus from the the things of this world and and sort of um, what is temporary uh, to the things of God. It is a recognition of our absolute dependence on him. So it's, it's a way for us to basically stop providing for ourselves so that we can kind of see how he provides. And it's often practiced at times when you have sort of a significant decision to make um, and you really want to be in line with God, you want to be in tune, um, and you want to sort of lean more deeply into um, his uh, provision and guidance. Now the interesting thing is scripture does not um, command us to fast anywhere. Um, Though many um, uh, make use of it, including Jesus, Uh, we see Jesus teaching on it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says it's a very rewarding practice, which means we should see it as something that is positive. Um, um, He says God will meet you in it. But he also warns that it is easy to put our value in the practice itself. So this is not like exercise. Like exercise, you go out and you lift something and it develops the muscle fibers and you can see sort of the direct correlation between the lifting that you're doing and the muscles that you're developing. I'm doing this as if I lift. um, Obviously, I don't. Uh, uh. When we talk about fasting, though, um, there's a mystery here. That that direct correlation isn't there. Um, In fasting, you sort of do one thing. You abstain for the sake of worship. And God does something else somewhat unrelated. He gives guidance. He gives comfort. And so while we faithfully act, we aren't making God's part happen. It isn't like we do this and then he, he has to do his part. No, he doesn't actually need us to fast in order to provide for us. This is one of those things that is actually a benefit to us. Now that brings us back to the story because that's, this is the, the mix-up the people have. Um, they're looking at the act of fasting as sort of this necessary part of religious practice. Sort of, you can't be a mature Christian unless you are doing this. It is the way to align with God. And then they look over at Jesus' disciples, and they're going, I mean, are these guys not serious Christians? Or like, well, I wouldn't be using Christians. Anyway, um, they're looking over at them, though, and going like, they don't seem to be doing this thing that we've all decided is an important and necessary part of religious practice. And so they asked a very fair question. Right? Why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus' answer is basically, um, why would they fast if all the things that fasting provides is already here? 
right? If you want to make sense of God's presence, don't go abstain, hang out with Jesus. And so he uses sort of three metaphors here to kind of make this point work. Uh, The first one's about fasting specifically, and the other two are aimed at sort of the ceremonial practices as, as a whole. And so the first thing that Jesus says is he, he uses this wedding metaphor. Uh, now, weddings were a big deal in this culture. Um, weddings are actually a big deal in most cultures. Um, now, in our culture, weddings are primarily about the bride, right? Weddings are primarily the way that we celebrate them in our culture, a way for her to get out her scrapbook or Pinterest board, right? All that she's been building up over the years and now to sort of make this unique and wonderful wedding, and, and the focus tends to be on expressing yourself. Um, I've walked a lot of people through the process of getting married, and that's one of the things, it's really interesting. They're like, what do people usually do? And I'm like, well, you live in the western part of the United States. There's are actually not very many usuallys anymore. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of things that people do in, in different ways, and we, I give some guidance, but, but ultimately the focus comes down to sort of like, what kind of wedding do you want to have? Now, it was different for those who Jesus was speaking to. Weddings were a little bit more predetermined, and wedding meant feast. Weddings were the time that the whole community came together to celebrate. And this was not just a few hours on a Saturday sort of shindig. This is weeks of communal life would be organized around the wedding feast. And so Jesus' comment here is that the wedding feast would be a bad day to choose to fast. Um, For two reasons. First, you'd miss out on a lot of good food, right? This is the time when people would bring the best that they have. Um, And so, man, fast another day. Um, But the other thing is that the, the wedding feast was an act of celebrating God's provision. It was for all the people to come together, and actually this gave them an opportunity to basically go, look what God has done. And so fasting was meant to accomplish the same thing that the feast already provided, And so if there's any time not to fast, it would be on that day. And and Jesus is making the connection to himself. I'm here. I am here with you. This is not the time for you to try to get into connection with God. Get into connection with God. Okay. Second metaphor Jesus uses is about sewing an unshrunk patch on a hole in a garment. Uh, This is a little bit harder for us to understand because almost all material we interact with is pre-shrunk. Now some of you are going, no, it's not because I bought that sweater and it fit. And it does, okay, things shrink a little bit, um, but, but truly pre-shrunk uh, fabric is going to shrink a lot. Um, so we're talking about a garment that's already been washed quite a few times. It's already done its pre-shrinking. It has a hole, and now you're putting a patch on it that is going to shrink a lot. And so the, the image that you're supposed to get is this, this, this patch that's going to pull all the threads out, and if you know anything, that'll, that'll make the hole bigger. It'll make it a, a bigger problem than what you started with. It'll be worse than it was before. The philosopher uh, Blaise Pascal famously described um, our need for God as this, or our need basically, as a God-shaped hole. And I actually think he might have had this metaphor in mind when he was saying this. Um, He wrote, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. He is echoing here what Jesus is saying. Nothing can adequately cover this hole but Jesus. Even the religious forms that God commanded of his people were merely placeholders. They were temporary patches until the true patch comes. 
In time, they prove themselves inadequate because this vacuum can only truly be filled by Jesus. That is the point that he's making. Jesus then builds on this metaphor by using a metaphor of wineskins. Um, when making wine, the fermenting process lets off carbon dioxide, which is produced when the yeast consumes the sugar and converts it to alcohol. If you've ever tried to make wine before, you know you have to basically allow for this gas to escape. Um, and so they put the wine into wineskins in the kind of the second part of the process where it is still letting off some of this gas because um, the wineskins can kind of expand a little bit. Um, now these wineskins are made out of leather, um, and over time leather gets brittle. Um, so new wineskins can kind of put up with this uh, um, um, expansion as it needs to. Old ones will simply crack. And so Jesus is referring to here, you don't put new wine into old wineskins because what will happen is all of your wine will be on the floor. Now in this, Jesus is referring to himself and then, then the gospel as the new wine and the religious practices um, as the wineskins. He's saying, I'm here to reveal the next part in God's plan of redemption, but it's not a part that's going to fit easily into what you have already known. It's, it's going to explode the structure that they have become accustomed to. Jesus is telling them, things are going to change and you need to be prepared for what those changes look like. It's not so much that they've messed up or, or done something terribly wrong, but God coming to earth and giving himself for his people is going to change everything. And so while the religious practices have value, that value is always connected to the source. We need to make sure that we don't become so comfortable with our Christian practices that they cause us to miss what they're pointing to, right? It's about Jesus, and they can very quickly become about everything else. The Gospel of Mark then quickly moves to the next story, as Mark does, um, where Jesus sort of applies this new wineskin concept to the second commandment. Second commandment? No. All right. Verse 23. It says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, look, why are they doing that? What is not lawful on the Sabbath? I imagine that's what they sounded like. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? he and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also he gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the image we get here is Jesus and his disciples are walking along. Um, they walk through these fields. Um, again, they've been, they've been going from place to place. And as they walk through the fields, um, they pluck the heads off the grain. Um, they sort of rub them together like this in their fingers to take off the, the chaff and, then, and, then, and remove the husks. And then they pop the grain in their mouth. Um, this was basically just a, this was a common way that people nourished themselves, just a little snack um, as, they, as they went on their way. And we see that the Pharisees see what Jesus' disciples are doing, and they're going to use this as an opportunity to challenge Jesus. Um, and to be clear, they're not accusing the, the, the disciples of stealing, because there's actually provision in God's law for people to be able to, 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 to pick like this. So um, it's not about them taking the food, it's about the day that they're doing it on. This is the Sabbath. And so their challenge is, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? 
Now, as we said, uh, the Sabbath was instituted by God um, by example at creation, right? On the seventh day, God rested, and by decree in the Ten Commandments. We read that in the reading of the law. Uh, Throughout the rest of the law, we see God giving some direction on what should and should not be done on this day of rest. Um, But the Jewish scholars took this and they basically said, we need to codify this. We need to make sure this is entirely written down and, and made into law. And then so they, 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 they did. They made a whole list of what is work and what isn't to make sure that everyone was in full compliance with God at all times. And so they came up with a list of 39 things that you are not allowed to do on the Sabbath. I'm not going to read all 39, but here's a few. Um, planting, plowing, reaping, gathering, threshing, winnowing, sorting, grinding, sifting, kneading, cooking, baking, shearing, laundry. Wouldn't that be nice? Separating two threads erasing, building, demolition, it goes on, right? This was all considered work. This was all off limits. You were not allowed to do any of these things. Um, It would mean that you are not obeying God and that you don't take him seriously. And so the simple act of plucking grain, removing the husks, um, uh, meant that the disciples had actually just broken three of these um, stipulations. And so their question to Jesus comes from their understanding of the Sabbath and how it works, which is really a means to prove your righteousness, right? The law for them was a test of your devotion. And so their challenge to Jesus here is a great accusation. He's saying, your disciples have no devotion to God and do not really love him. They're they're, they're basically saying, you don't care. And so Jesus responds to them by asking a question. It's a question about David eating the bread of presence. And what he's referencing is a story we see in 1 Samuel 21, um, and this is just after Jonathan, the son of Saul, has warned David that, that, that Saul wants to kill him. And so David flees with some men, and, and they have to flee pretty quickly. Um, they're on the run, they come to this town, they come to the temple, they don't, have not had anything to eat, and so they ask the priest if there's any food that is there. And the priest tells David that the only bread that he has has already been consecrated, which means it's already been set aside for God. Um, David promises the the priest that his men have been pure, they've maintained their obedience to the law, and the priest then gives David and his men some of the bread so that they will not die. Now, that is not technically lawful. Um, That is not following the Old Testament law, and um, this bread that has been set aside can only be eaten by the priest, and so David here is breaking the Old Testament law. But as Jesus references that, I think it's interesting, he doesn't actually try to make it lawful. He says, he should not have done, or he was not allowed to do this. Um, but in his usage, in the way that he tells the story, it makes it clear that, that what David did was not wrong. Because in the story of David, God has anointed him king. He's rescued him from Saul for a purpose. And the bread of presence is the way that God sustains David in order to accomplish his ends. Now, the bread of presence was a symbolic acknowledgement that God was the source of Israel's life and nourishment. And it served as Israel's act of thanksgiving to God. That's why they would bring this bread forward. And so while the normal use of it was to provide for the priests, the priests would then eat it once it was set apart. In this case, God used what was set aside as a special provision for his chosen king. Now, what's interesting about this story is this is a well-known part of Israel's history. Everyone there would have known this story. They would have uh, remembered when it happened um, because it has been used and told as part of how God brought them to prosperity, um, how he provided for the people. Um, Because 
the height of Israel's sort of prosperity was during the reigns of David and Solomon. And so the story of how God got David from being hunted to being the king of Israel was something that they, again, told and retold and celebrated. And so Jesus points to this breaking of the law, which had already been deemed acceptable by Jewish culture, to show that while the Pharisees acted like this was a black and white rule, while they were charging him like, like there was never any exception, they weren't actually consistent with it in their own understanding of God's work through history. So the question is, what do we do with this? Because it seems like Jesus is sort of coming in and creating subjective truth. Right? He seems to be dealing in situational ethics here. Truth is truth, except when it isn't. And so people have looked at this and gone, like, is Jesus morally subjective? Like, what do we do here? Well, he's definitely liberal in comparison to the structure of the Pharisees. Right? The Pharisees treated the world as if it was flat. They left no room for discernment. They choked the life out of the law. And so God's truth became dead truth. They recorded it in a very large book, so large that it took one rabbi two and a half years to simply understand one of the 24 chapters on the Sabbath. And by creating this law, by making it this, it became useless. The law could no longer do what it was meant to do. It no longer had the power to draw people to the holiness of God, to his mercy, to his love, to his goodness. All the law can do in that form is either make you succeed or fail. And so what Jesus is concerned with is the law actually being applied in the way that it was meant to be, in order to accomplish what it was meant to. And the law of the Sabbath in particular exists to give people time and space to rest in God. And so that's what Jesus points to here when he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Which is to say, the whole purpose of the Sabbath, of the rest, of the ceremonies, of the sacrifices, was always to help people stop and see God. To rest from distractions. To practice rituals and traditions that remind you of what you and I forget. To sacrifice as an act of repentance for our sins. To trust in God's provision by not relying on ourselves. Now, while Jesus isn't a big fan of the legalistic approach of the Pharisees, let's, let's, he's not here to push aside and apply an if-you-feel-like-if-it-works-for-you interpretation either. We see in his life that Jesus is very serious about the Sabbath. He keeps the Sabbath perfectly. And as he reframes the Sabbath for the Pharisees here, it's not to diminish or loosen it in any way. It's to bring it back to what it was originally designed for. Right? A gift to humanity to give them the physical and spiritual rest that they need. That's what it's for. Now, Jesus then takes this a step further. He doesn't just say, okay, stop practicing it this way, now practice it this way. He says, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Which is to say, not only does he have authority over the law, but Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus here is claiming that he is the eternal rest that was foreshadowed by the Sabbath. He's making it clear that as Lord of the Sabbath, he is here to bring freedom and rest for his people. He's here to free them from the weight of sin, but also from the constraints of human legalism. Now, we'll get to what that looks like for us in just a second. 
But Jesus isn't done. He's got one more group of people to make mad. This time he doesn't wait for them to come after him. He actually, he actually initiates it. Chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. It says, again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see, what he would, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So Jesus goes to the synagogue. Um, and they're following him. They're watching everything that he does, just trying to sort of fig- find a place where they can, they can get him. Um, and rather than acting first, as Jesus often does, here he poses a question to the Pharisees. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? Um, now what Jesus knows is that the rabbinic law allows for some uh, work to be done if it is for the purpose of saving a life. And so Jesus takes that idea, he expands it out, um, expands it from just a person's life that is in immediate danger to, to doing good. He makes the Pharisees choose between doing good and doing harm. Right? Are they really going to say that he can't do the good work of healing the man in order to bring honor to God because it's the Sabbath? That's, that's ultimately what he's presenting. And he has them in a bind here. Um, because if they say, yes, you can heal the guy, they're basically going against everything else that they're teaching over here. Um, and they have to kind of admit that there is some wiggle room. But if they say that he can't heal the man, uh, they reveal that they are uh, cold jerks who don't care about anyone. Um, that they'd rather keep the letter of the law than actually help someone who is here in need. And so they don't really have an answer that's going to benefit them. They don't really know how to answer. And so they do what a lot of people do in that situation. They try not to make eye contact and hope Jesus doesn't call on them. They refuse to answer. They've sort of been caught in this contradiction within their own system. But rather than being willing to admit that, rather than being to sort of uh, walk away from that and, 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 and be willing to change, they dig their heels in. They'd rather save face than change. And what we see is that this grieves Jesus. It tells us that he's angry. Now, this is a righteous anger. Of course, it's Jesus. Um, but his anger is, is aimed at doctrine that gets in the way of mercy. That these religious men cared so much about their own personal piety and being right that they were unwilling to have any care or concern for those around them. And so in the same way that focusing on fasting has caused them to miss the presence of God, we now see that being self-righteous has prevented them from being the stewards and servants that God has called them to be. Now, this danger is alive and well today. It is very possible to allow doing the right thing to prevent you from actually doing the right thing. Now, one direct and easy application for this, um, if we sort of follow in line with this, uh, this teaching directly, is, is those who elevate systems and rituals and doctrines above what they want, or sorry, above what they are meant to produce. And I'll say this is a very real struggle for pastors. 
pastors feel the pressure to sort of make things happen in, in the church and make things happen in the lives of the people that are part of it. And so they're looking for ways to sort of produce ends. Rather than allowing for the organic to do its part, leaving room for God and the Spirit to do His work, pastors tend to look for structures and forms that that we can put our hope and trust in. It's not just pastors, but I think this is one that specifically pastors struggle with. I've watched many pastors take what God has given us to be what we think of as the trellis um, to to help structure the growth of the church, and they've used it to squash growth, beat people over the head with it. And this is true of both legalism, sort of strict rulemaking, but also sort of growth, um, uh, church growth, which loses individuals to the goal of evangelism and expansion. All that to say, we do need to be careful not to make idols out of those things which are meant to help us grow in Christ, not to put the weight and the, the, the power into traditions, rituals, systems. Now, while this sort of legalism is not something that our church is entirely devoid of, I personally don't think that is the sacred cow that it is in some other places. And part of the reason for that is over the last 20 years or so, there's been a war against sort of the pharisaical. And I think many of us come from backgrounds where there was such a fear of legalism that trusting too much in the institutional church or, or the practices within it isn't really where we struggle. Right? I don't usually feel like, man, the people of our church are too committed to the church. Sorry. And so when we read this, when we read Jesus in this story, this is at least how I think of it, I'm on Jesus' side behind him going, yeah, what he said, don't be one of those people. So let me try to bring this a little closer to home. I think one of the places that the modern church is in danger of taking something that is good and that was given for our growth and elevating it to a healthy place is in the realm of church community. That is to say, it is very easy to make an idol out of belonging and about having kind of this perfect sort of family where you have all your friends and you do everything together and, oh, isn't it just great? The ideal church. A lot of authors have been writing about this and then what they tend to do is they go to Acts chapter 2, right? Let's get back to the Acts 2 church. Let's be like the early church. This is what it says in Acts 2, 44 through 47. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food and with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So good, right? Who doesn't want to be part of that? And we should. We should absolutely want to be part of a community like that. I think, and I've said this before, I think this is actually a picture of what heaven will be like. But what has happened is this this moment of God's grace in the early church has become a club by which to critique and dismiss every community that does not rise to this standard. And we don't leave it with the biblical description we add in our own things. So we have all these ideas through books and blogs and ideas and of, of what the church is supposed to be, of, of what you're supposed to provide for me, of how you're supposed to meet my needs. And so that we come into the church, 
We come into the church with an idea of what acceptance and fellowship and community and support are supposed to be, and we try to make it happen. We try to produce it. And a few things happen when we do this. Uh, The first thing that happens is it always fails. Because the church is always filled with sinful people. It's always filled with people who don't say the right thing or do the right thing. People who aren't the right kind of people. And so ultimately we'll go, oh, another church that failed me. But the second thing that happens, and I think this happens more for the people who kind of stay and, and, and are part of it, is that producing an ideal community means overlooking and cutting out people who don't fit your vision. Right? So you actually often kind of surround yourself with the people who have the same sort of ideas and who look like you and think like you um, because those are the people you can imagine actually accomplishing this with. And those other people over there, they're just going to get in the way. Those people are takers. Right? And so I think like the Pharisees, we become blind to the very real needs of people because they threaten the idea of church that we're trying to maintain. We're willing to overlook and not see people who are lonely and who are in need because that's not going to help me to get where I'm trying to get. I've always loved how Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes this in the book Life Together. He says, those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idealized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. And they enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. But it is not we who build. Christ builds the church. Now, this doesn't mean we stop striving to be the kind of church we see in Acts 2, the kind of community that we are going to be in heaven. Absolutely, that should be in our minds. But we need to make sure that it doesn't blind us to what is right in front of us. Similarly, we don't stop practicing the spiritual disciplines and the ordinary means of grace, things like fasting and Sabbath keeping. We just need to make sure that we don't elevate these things and put our hope in them above the Creator. And every week when we gather together, we have an example of this. Right? Every week when we come together, we take communion. Now, communion is a ceremonial act given to us by God to help us as we live in this life, as we maintain unity with Him. And we are told that in communion, He is going to provide us with strength and presence and confidence. And we are trusting as we come up and we partake that He will provide as He has promised. But it's just bread and juice. It's not that much effort for you to get up and walk up and grab it. The power is in the God behind it. The power is in the God who meets us there. And so we need to make sure that we don't lose the meaning of that, but we also need to make sure that we see it correctly. God has redeemed us. Jesus gave his life for us. And this is the way that we are reminded of that and come into that reality each and every week. So let's not lose the eternal God in the act of partaking. 
And as you come to the table today, ask Jesus to reveal where you may be putting too much value and hope in the things of this world. Ask him to open your eyes to the things that he prioritizes and wants you to see. And ask him to break you, that you may be whole again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for all that you do for us, and we, we admit that we are people who elevate things that we shouldn't. We worship things that are created rather than creator. And we try to make ourselves the ones who are the force behind what is happening. And so we ask you to humble us in this. We help ask you not to allow us to go down the road too long thinking somehow that we are more than we are. Instead, continually remind us that we are sinners, but we are saved by grace. We are so, so broken and sinful that you had to give yourself. It was the only way, and yet you did, which shows the value and the love you have placed on us. God, in that, I pray that our identity shifts from ourselves to you, that our hope shifts from the things of this world to you. God, just help us to make that movement that we we may be aligned with what we were created for, to worship you fully and completely. We thank you for putting up up with us as we try to figure this out. Uh, We thank you for um, redeeming us so that all of our sin is not counted against us. We just thank you so much that you don't give up on us in the way that we so often give up on others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.